All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck sticks? What the fucking ears? Hi, folks. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. How are you? I do want to say some things right up, right up front here before I forget them or bury them or put them... Whatever. I have a special premiering on Netflix tonight. My special Thinky Pain premieres tonight on Netflix, all English-speaking Netflix. I believe that's UK Netflix, Canada Netflix, American Netflix. Tonight, October 7th. The rest of the Netflix will follow uh, those on the 21st. I'm proud of this special. I went out of my way to do certain things on this special to honor who I am at this point in my career. We did it at a small venue, we did it at a venue that had some significance to me. Uh, you will see a, some, some brief cameos by uh, Tom Sharpling, my dear friend Tom Sharpling, my dear friend Sam Lipsight also shows up. Uh, and it was like just another night. I went out of my way to make sure that we kept it uh, sort of about the performance. You will notice there is not a lot of audience cutaways. You only see a couple rows of the audience. I did it in front of a small group of people, about 240 people. The entire special, I believe, is pulled from one performance out of the two. And I did have a stomach virus. (laughs) So I was doing a team thing on my special. It was me and an unseen stomach bug that was uh, pestering me. That's not an excuse for anything. I'm proud of the special. I chose to keep it long it's about an hour and a half i believe or so old school movie length special and i hope you enjoy it thinky pain tonight on american canadian uk netflix that's the 7th and the 21st everywhere else what else next sunday on the 13th i will be doing one of my one night shows at the ice house we that's like a 7 30 show Dean Delray will be with me. He's very excited about that. Some of you remember you met Dean here on the podcast, Rock and Roll Dean uh, Delray at uh, the Ice House on October 13th. I I believe there'll be uh, other people on the show. So those are the two plugs up front. Oh my God, Laura Dern is on the show. How much do you love her? How much do you fucking love Laura Dern? I tell you, man, this uh, this interview was recorded a little while back, so we did have a pretty long discussion about Enlightened. It was a great show. It was a character I could relate to. It was a, a self-involved character full of idealism and anger and uh, narcissism. It was a, a beautiful show. She was great in it. She's great in everything she does. She is inspirational just uh, just by being her. Not that she pays any lip service to being inspirational, but there's something about Laura Dern's earnestness and uh, passion that is very unique and she's a fucking great actress and i was uh, thrilled to talk to her uh nervous even but i think we had a good chat so you can enjoy that momentarily i want to thank dave anthony and the crew at podfest we had a good time uh it was a great event this is the second year for la podfest and a lot of people came out there's a lot of podcast fans out there and God damn it, we appreciate you. It was fun to see everybody. I like these festival things. They're kind of interesting, you know, just people hanging out for an entire weekend, fans of a thing. And there were dozens of podcasts there, and it was great to see all the all my pals. I did, uh, I'm going to do, I did Greg, Greg Fitzsimmons' show. 
I did the new Death Squad show, the Tony Heathcliff show. I did a couple of smaller podcasts. It was just, it's a real community now. And I feel like, uh, you know, I'm definitely part of it, and I definitely had something to do with it. And uh, it's pretty exciting. Benson was there. Jimmy Pardo was there. Rich Voss and Bonnie McFarlane were there. Jake Johansson was there. Um, Dana Gould was there. Uh, man, there were a lot of podcasters there. Uh, and those were only the ones that I ran into. It's very interesting that once you start doing something, look, folks, never forget the fact that we are all just potential content. That anything you put out there, even just you, your content, at some point, things have got to level off. There's just you know, hundreds of content providers, people rolling their dice, throwing their hat into the content providing ring, hoping somebody will come and feed on their content. Just remember, you will not be judged by your work. You will not be judged by your legacy will be the amount of content that you leave the world. Not whether or not it's good. Not whether or not it means anything, but that is your legacy. How much content did he provide the great content machine? Content is eternal. Digitized content will never go away. You will be judged by your content forever and eternity. Nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do. Once you dump it, once it becomes ones and zeros, that's it. It's eternal. Hey, I don't want that out there. Uh, sorry, there's no track in that thing now. It is swimming through the content ocean. Being picked up by this and that. Fishes, processed, digested, spit out. Oh, there's a piece of it and some other thing. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. Some little content catalyst. Some little aggravated man at the keyboard. I'm just going to take part of that content and mash it into this other thing and then put it out as a whole thing and I'm going to frame it the way I want it. I'm going to take that guy's content, that guy's legacy, and just mash it up into some other bullshit and recontextualize it and put it out as my content, my statement on his content. It's like fucking cancer. The malignancy of content legacy. You got no control over it, man. You will be mashed up, framed, dissected, cut up, repackaged uh, for someone else's needs. That is the destiny of content. That is the destiny of your legacy. Just to be part of something else. Cut up, reframed, annihilated, and diminished. Happy Monday! <laughs> Man. But you're enjoying my content, and, I, and I'm thankful for that. Okay? Content will be provided. Let's talk to Laura Dern. I have this fascination with the people that grew up in this city, but also in show business when you did. Like, I have, I can't imagine what it was like to be a kid <laughs> around these people. Dude, I it mean, it was crazy. Man. I mean, so, <laughs> I mean, your dad's fucking Bruce Dern. Seriously, do you know that? I, I'm just <laughs> starting to realize it and get over it. <laughs> He's one of the great kind of like, uh, you know, hippie oddballs oh, God, in a way, so right? Awesome, yeah. He's so awesome. Did you spend time with him when you were a kid, though? I mean, I did. I mean, I was. I definitely was raised by my mom and my yeah. grandma, but I spent a lot of time with him as I got older. I think yeah. he kind of, as you could imagine, probably didn't really know what to do with a small person. <laughs> Is that um, true? Yeah, I, I don't think... see how any of those guys did. Like yeah. all those those stars of that time. I mean, it could. I couldn't imagine any of them as parents. No. 
No. But when you were a kid, I don't mean, I don't know what your mom, uh, Diane Ladd, was. Did she like say like, enough with these men? I'm taking the kid. But, I mean, basically, I think she realized <laughs> that she might just be better off kind of trying to figure out how to do it with her mom and, um, you know, getting our own pad. Um and letting him, you know, have his life as he needed it at the time. You know, I, it's so weird because they divorced when I was two. So I don't even know what their life looked like. But you don't feel like there, it wasn't like, you know, you said that in a very sort of giving way. Like, you know, she just let him have his wife. There was no like, get the fuck out of my house. You and your friends. Okay. <laughs> my mom yeah. is Diane Ladd. Right. So anyone who knows her knows get the fuck out <laughs> was definitely part of the conversation. Yeah. Because even if the conversation of child support came up 10 years later, <laughs> I heard the F word a lot in my house. So um, she was definitely vocal, I'm sure, about what she, you know, wasn't getting then. Yeah. But what's amazing now that, you know, I'm... A mom and a yeah. grown up and yeah. going through divorce is yeah. I hear her sort of in retrospect. Yeah. Considering that, you know, when you think about it, he was a kid. And right. Like and and it's a very narcissistic environment. Yeah. And expecting something from someone who doesn't really need to give it at that time in their life is Right. You know, as so as is- program would say, it's it's, you know, trying to buy a loaf of bread at the liquor store. And I think that was sort of what she got at mm-hmm. some point for herself. And uh-huh. now she's settled in and they're dear friends. Really? Yeah. And hang out all the time with my kids when we have, you know, so they're grandparents? family events. They're grandparents. Isn't Bruce that- and Diane. And, I, and now I get to see why they would have fallen in love and were a couple because they're hysterical together. Right. And they adore each other's talent and they love talking about movies. Really? And they worked with the same tribe of people. Right. So there's a real common language that, you know, I'm sad they didn't get to explore more in that it's super cool, but right. for for the way they do it, it's kind of great too that they're still family. Well, isn't it amazing how time just pounds things out? It that, does. Yeah, that eventually you, you unless you're really committed to spite eventually things just fade and you get soft and it's a good thing. You know, if I could turn our interview into a PSA and say right now for people who are going through the challenge of divorce, yeah. I would say, guys, you know what? Just just chill out and know that there is a silver lining here and in like 35 years... <laughs> You guys will really get along and everybody will have fun together. Why are you stressing out when your children have children and have already spent thousands of dollars in therapy going through their multiple damaged marriages and raging at you for what you did to them? You're going to have a really good time with your ex at a birthday party somewhere. Yeah. Just uh, just wait it out. Wait it out. Wait it out. 30 years. Big deal. Give yourself a break. I know. There's love. It's all. It's always. It always circles back to love. So, but I think it's interesting to me that you can see that, you know, whatever the love they had initially was genuine because of the way they interact now. I mean, that's kind of beautiful. It is. It, it really is. Why don't you make that movie? I, I mean, want them to make that movie. That would be really good. It would be beautiful, right? Yeah. I don't know how you would do the. I, I mean, you wouldn't have to do the younger part. You just have to do now. Yeah. Make a documentary. I do love that. I did a little short about yeah. them working together. They worked together some years ago. And my godmother, who was Shelley Winters, was in it too. So the three of them worked together. 
um, on a movie for Showtime, and it was super funny and fun. And a group of friends and I made a little like behind the scenes, which was radical. But they, but it was it was still new because yeah. that was. 15 years ago, maybe now, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Shelly's um, been dead for a while. Yeah. Right? So now it would be very different. Yeah. I think there's a real easy. closeness. Yeah. But let's talk about the when you started acting because you're phenomenal and, and you've, oh, you've burned yourself you. into my brain oh, in, good. A, in a peculiar way. <laughs> you're very that was angry. my goal, really. <laughs> to to I burn mean, yourself into everyone's you, brain. Well, yours, at least. <laughs> you've burned yourself into mine. By the way, do people talk about the garage? At times they do, yeah. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I'm, I'm hanging on to a lot of dreams in terms of reading a lot of these books. Oh, my God. But I, I like it. It's my whole life in here. The uh, images, the posters. This is the spot. This is new. Look at this. Signed to uh, Iggy Pop record. <gasps> he, he was oh, sitting right there, shirtless, where you were. Wow. I'm yeah. going to follow suit in the next 10 minutes. Wait a minute. I, I had, I'm not prepared. <laughs> I could barely keep it together with his boobs out. <laughs> I guess that's what people do in the garage. <laughs> that, that's right. I should try this out. Like, you know, yeah. Iggy took his shirt off. I don't know what you're going to do. but uh... Hey, if you want to be a cool artist. <laughs> yeah. But you started acting when you were like, what, 10? 11 was my first professional movie, meaning yeah. not an extra on my parents' film or something. Yeah. And uh, I started studying at nine. But I would say when I was 11 and got that first job, I became a serious actor. I was very committed. I was very committed to studying. That was a huge influence, I think, because of my parents' commitment to studying. Who um, they both study with, or how, who? What you were predominantly with? at the actor's studio. And who was there at that time? Uh, Lee Strasberg was their teacher. Really? Yeah, and they, you know, and and Lee taught Shelley, and Lee taught Robert De Niro, and a lot of people who I was around as Pacino, a kid. Pacino, right? Yeah, I mean, my God, such amazing actors. Were you around De Niro as a kid? A little bit. They did, I mean, Dad did a movie with him. Shelley did a movie, a couple movies with him. Mom, uh, and he starred in a movie that Shelley director, directed on Off-Broadway. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was around this tribe of brilliant actors who were very committed yeah. to continuing to study while being very revered for their work you well, never stopped and so right. that was i think something that i that was very ingrained in me what do you, like i don't like i don't understand that like i don't know that i'm uh i'm an okay actor but i never really studied acting what is the continuation of that process it's not something you can learn and go like all right i've got my craft in place is there an insecurity to it where you think you have to keep going back to Daddy Strasberg or how does that work? I am sure for everybody it's different. Right. I, I know I've worked with actors who say they've never studied and they're brilliant at their work. Does, and, that, does that bother you? And I hate them for it. No. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and there are, I've worked with English actors who, you know, did a level trained. of training that I've never done. So... Um, but I, I was interested in it. I liked it. I, I think that's the area of my life where being a perpetual student is interesting to me because I'm not a college grad. And so I put it into the craft of acting and movies and, uh, studying film. And I went to RADA for two summers because I wanted to be classically trained, even though it was two summers at the Royal Academy, but I was interested in Shakespeare. Like I was interested in everything as a but like teenager. As a, would you, I mean, as a 10 year old, were you studying the method? I mean, how much sense memory do you really have? Like no. you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember being on a plane flying to Reno yeah. with my dad yeah. when I was 
16, 17, and I was uh, 16. I was yeah. going to do a movie called Smooth Talk, and I was describing the film to my dad, and I was like, you know, this is my first lead, and it's a very emotional role. Yeah. And he said, well, you can't, I mean, you can't be a great actor until you have have some fucking memories i mean you can't even like what do you he said you that. know yeah it was like you can't how do you know what to do and and sort of befuddled like yeah. he didn't even know what i was gonna do or how i was gonna have sort of sense memory or emotional recall or whatever but, and i was devastated thank god yeah. i was savvy enough far savvier than i am now to go are you kidding with a dad like you i could have been doing this at nine <laughs> um but but also you're playing a 16 year old it's not like you were playing a 50 year old exactly that you had to make up for some weird space in your memory that didn't wasn't there and and i would just say that for me continually studying is about understanding each character differently it's yeah. not it's not trying to capture necessarily so you go what in, the craft is you go in when you have a challenge and you have a, yeah. a you have a, a teacher that you're like yes. all right i gotta do this Exactly. Where do I start? Exactly. And it's the same teacher since I was 18 named Sandra Seacat, who's amazing and is totally she like, my mentor. Is she like one of these people that has a, a small cult of people? Yeah, she definitely has a cult. Yeah? We're a cult. Yeah? How many <laughs> How many strong are you? We're pretty... Uh, it's it's, gro- it's and growing. Yeah. Um, I think there are a number of us and great actors that she's worked with. Like who? For many years. Uh, Jessica Lang, she's worked with for many, many years. Have you worked with her? Uh, I've never worked with Jessica, yeah. no. She's amazing. Uh, she's worked with so many people. And and what is like? What is her... Like, I'm sort of fascinated because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an actor now. Thank God. Yeah. And you are an actor. I am. You're going to continue acting Yeah, I'm just more. trying to perfect the role of, of me and, and move uh, that around. I mean, hello. Exactly. That's the all you got to do, right? Well, and that's kind of what's awesome about working with her because it is sort of perfecting the role of us so that we can have... In, in my case, I love playing people that are hard to find empathy for. Um, that's really interesting to me. And that's so, an intentional choice. That's something yeah. you look for. Yeah. I mean, I think it's what turns me on kind of when I read it. I mean, I, I, if I struggle with understanding the person or having real compassion for their choices, it makes me want to get in there and figure it out. And so then I feel like I have to go to the deepest places right. in myself to just sort of figure out, um, even if it's intuitive, what what is it and what are the boundaries and how far do you push it? And I like, I mean, I love documentary film and I love, as I'm sure we share, uh, particularly in the 70s, films and filmmakers that really push the envelope by uh, having very complicated protagonists that are deeply flawed being the stars of films. Right, no happy endings. And that was a huge influence on why I wanted to be in movies. And so um, I feel like if film can be a service in any way to any of us, it certainly is for me. It's when I'm sitting there, as you expressed in your Noah Baumbach interview about Greenberg, and something's uncomfortable because it feels a little too close. And right. maybe we ask a question or two, and that's awesome. And also the idea that uh, you know empathy uh, is a, a broad and open-hearted thing, that that in order to uh, to to connect with some uh, a character who's horrible, uh, to find the humanity in the horrible is the best because you know monsters are lovable. I and mean, come on, we've dated them. Absolutely, <laughs> and you know there's nothing more satisfying than somebody coming up and saying, 
oh my God, when I saw you, I just hated her. And then by the end, or, you know, particularly on the show I do, you know, people really having a hard time with a character that they grow to love or in the course of the a two-hour movie. being enlightened? Yeah. Well, I mean, I love that thing and I'm mad and like, you better find a home for it so I can figure out what the fuck happened. And I would, <laughs> you know, you know, because I, I, I'm engaged in the story. But I think that character, for any of us who are, who are insecure or searching or self-involved or confused about, uh, you know, the, don't know the difference between, you know, narcissism and selflessness. Literally don't, yeah. like cannot... Figure out why they're doing something and what it serves. I mean, I identify with the character immediately because I'm I'm a broken person. So so I it wasn't hard for me to empathize, but I did get to that point where it's like, oh my God, she's fucking irritating. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I loved her. I know, me too. I love her so much. I mean, I love her beyond and compare. And your mother was genius. Wasn't Holy she incredible? Shit. I mean, like, I have never seen her act like that. I know. It was like the best. It was the best. She was incredible. And I have to say, I mean, you know, regardless of how great an actor she is, to be a mother and to be a very effusive mother. Right. And to be that restrained with your own daughter in the performance is also incredible. Oh, yeah. Because it's just not a moment that you feel her giving back until really the very end what, when and I don't see it it's only for the audience <laughs> you know she has like one private moment of pride of her daughter and Amy's not anywhere around right it's perfect and and what uh, like in in working like that how deep does she go I mean on when you guys are off or when they call cut do you know do you relax or you do, does she stay in character I mean what mode of acting does she come from do you- it's so funny this thing too about method acting like you know my dad just did a film that's incredible that I can't wait for you to see called Nebraska, which will come out this fall. Uh-huh. That's written, directed by Alexander Payne. And my dad is so amazing in this movie. I'm so excited for him. Well, he's a good, he's the, he's the guy that sort of builds characters that you like to play in a way. Yeah. Oh, completely. And yeah, so watching cool. him work, having worked the last couple of years with my mom, um, working with friends who are, you know, labeled very method like Sean Penn and others, Philip Seymour Hoffman, anybody, you know, they call cut and we're just like, anyway, yeah, what did you eat last? God, oh my God, that Indian food was so Really? Yeah, so, um, you know, if if I, I can only speak to my own experience, but if I'm doing something that's deeply emotional, you know, just for my own focus, I may have to stay very concentrated in the emotion of that you know, of that storytelling or whatever it is. And and that means within those hours that we're filming. Yeah. But I don't think it's sustainable uh, to be a character through the course of a movie. It would burn me out. I mean, I need a break even from the character to kind of come back and, and be inside her. But at the same time, you know, if you're on an emotional roller coaster which I've been on a couple of times with characters I think it is hard to separate yourself even if you think you're doing it yeah that's the other thing so I think there's unconscious method yeah I, I think that sometimes yeah the un, I, I think that uh, the role that Pacino played in Scarface he couldn't shake for years because I saw him on stage doing uh, Mammoth's uh, American Buffalo like a couple of years later and I, I swear I detected a Cuban accent like I I still don't <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't think he had purged it completely. Yeah. That when he yelled, it was Tony Montana, you know, even though like he had not, I don't know how you erase that after a certain point. But what do you think that, like I read like something about, it was, who was it? I, I think it was uh, Vim Vender saying it about, about actors saying that like, you know, they don't, when you talk to them, they, a lot of times they seem flat only because their, their vulnerability, they need to protect their emotions because that is the heart of their craft. So they're not going to give that out necessarily just in conversation. All I can say is I'm hopeful that's true. It sounds like it is for his experience. But if you interviewed anyone I've ever dated, yeah. they probably wouldn't describe me as flat. No, I'm not describing you as that. No, no, no. I mean, I mean that as a put down to myself. I mean, I'd like to keep it all in, is what I'm no, saying. No, well, that's well, that's your particular genius. No, is that it's all out all the time, and I'm uncomfortable. Like, I, I mean, it, as soon as, it's probably all out. As, I mean, as soon as you get on screen, I'm like, oh man, yeah. now what's going to happen? There's a lot going on. But I, I do think in my life, I, I like to try to live the opposite. I don't, but I mean, I'm certainly attempting it far more than what what I like to play on screen. Well, so do you think that these characters that you're attracted to are some reflection of your own, uh, you know, feelings about yourself or your own insecurity about being accepted or or being empathized for? And oh, there's all of it for sure. Although I am not um, by nature, and I think having been raised by big personalities, I. Uh, really liked to keep the peace. I really liked to find peace. Um, I was scared by um, big emotion Yeah, growing up, which is odd. Um, <clears throat> and yet, it's comfortable to me to be around big personalities. Sure. So in a way, sometimes I think I play characters that I'm trying to understand better um, because I've loved them. Yeah. Even if they're not a reflection of me. So... Parts of them are myself, and parts of them are people I've loved well, it's, um, it's, in family and that I've acquired in life. Um, because I I want to have less judgment and better understanding. Because we are all in this mess together, and uh, we do have a lot of anger. And that was a big thing for me in terms of enlightened was really trying to understand rage and rage. Like, can rage become? A gift. How can you, if harnessed for a cause, can it achieve something, or is it just toxic? That was I, well, if you were to ask my ex-wife, she would say, "No, rage is not a gift of any kind." And you know, I left <laughs> depleted for a reason. Right. If, but if you were asked, if you were to ask the people that listen to me on political lefty political talk radio, they would say, "Well, rage is you know, uh, it was important. It was a." But I've talked about that a lot in the sense that. You, you, to differentiate, to, to, to decide who, who you want to be as a person. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you're angry about things and, you know, you think they're righteous things. Right. But yet you don't address the existential anger that you're experiencing or the familial, you know, sort of family of origin stuff mm -hmm. that has been toxic in your life. You just keep going on raging about things thinking it's righteous. At some <laughs> point, you have to deal with the core stuff to find the sadness or the loss or whatever the hell is there, right? Totally. And did you have to do that with mm -hmm. that character or in your own life? Certainly with the character and 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 therefore to try to understand it for myself. I mean, that's the complicated thing about Amy is she, you know, she does things, uh, she takes horrible routes 
to achieve her goals, and yet she affects change. By the end of these two seasons, her mother is a different person. Her ex-husband is a different person. They're also the same, but they've, they've been inspired by her in their own way. And this massive corporation may never change, so it may be gone. And that's also partly her impact. So it's it's pretty fascinating to see how... But does um, she change? Because, like, is somebody that's that... Is sort of narcissistic going to real... Like, is it just going to feed that... Right? I mean, that's why I think Mike and I both dreamt of one more season because I think, in a way, we saw the the trilogy from the beginning yeah. of... I mean, he beautifully saw... You know, how does someone fall apart and then and then come back together? Mm-hmm. That was really interesting to him. But it's a little vague why she was in, you know, treatment in the first place, other than she got has, angry. Yeah, she has a rage issue. Do you have that? No. You did, you've never felt the warmth of hate in your heart? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I don't... Uh, <clears throat> and I've lost it, sure, but I, I'm not someone who uh, is a rager or can't control my anger or But you grew up with a little or, of that? Oh, yeah. I've grown up around a lot of it, and I've experienced a lot of it in the people I've loved. And It's horrible. It it's makes horrible. You, it and makes we you. all get... I mean, in love, we all get super triggered, and it's... You know, if somebody else is reactive, it's hard not to get reactive back and to really detach. And oh my god, that's but when is you're impossible. a kid and you go through that, the only you know, once you stop crying and once you you get you know uh, past the 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 horrendous boundaryless you know assault of someone else's emotional shrapnel flying around <laughs> all the time, you you sort of shut down and and you kind of realize like, well, I guess I'm going to have to take care of me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you kind of get insulated, and then, like, I, I don't know, that was my experience. I mean, you try to control, you know, your immediate uh, yeah. environment. Yeah. And it, that's the thing. If nobody's there letting you know that it's not your job, right. that stuff's going to come up at some point. Oh, yeah. So it's like a parent has to sort of take that bag from you, or you're holding the bag till you become a grown-up, and it all starts all over. Right, it's right. It's such a mess. And but... you run around collecting, you know, furious people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is interesting. And you watch them spin around and go, I, I'm trying to help you. I mean, listen, we do it as a country. So uh, as Americans, since we're doing it uh, in, our, in our citizen life, why wouldn't we do it in our personal life? If we go, I know, we'll get a guy who bases everything on fear and is going to build a machine so nobody's going to ever get to us. We'll just bomb them first. Yeah. And we're going to protect ourselves with our machine. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's we're either going to live by fear in every area or we're going to somehow completely change it to our core. And, and, and in answer to the question about Amy, I mean, I think she's someone who wants to change it to the core, right? but, you know, only grows incrementally. But she, you know, at the end, she definitely makes false moves, but contains herself in such elegant ways comparatively yeah. to the person we started with. Sure. Um, and, you know, the very last image of, of our second season, you know, she sees herself on the cover of the LA Times 
And I like she doesn't even pick up the paper. She's achieved her goal, which is using her voice. And so you start to wonder, like, was she a narcissist? Was she an egomaniac? Or was she egocentric enough to believe she could change the world and actually tried to do it, but didn't try to do it to become a star? which is unusual in the world. So it's she's complicated. Right. She's but, all things. But there's also that dynamic of of the, you know, like her her mother was, you know, emotionally detached. Mm-hmm. So that there's a rage that just needs to be satisfied. Totally. So like there's also that feeling of like la 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 la, it's out, I'm good. Are you okay? Why are you crying? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So like I that feeling of like not picking up the paper was uh, whatever she was doing might have been sated before that like it was absolutely done. absolutely so let's go back and talk about when this when you really realized that this was where you were going to go with with how you were going to run your career or how you were going to who, who you were going to seek out to play when you started making actual choices as opposed to just taking movies yeah um you know it's funny like for if i may be so uh brazen and yeah. arrogant yeah. as to assume i'm part of your tribe <laughs> me being such a huge fan of yours but i i i you know We're the same admire generation. your taste and so yeah the people you want to interview the movies you comment on that you love i mean we are the same generation and we happen to love the same things right. and what i've heard and learned about we're, you we're the la- the lost generation of the crashing 60s that's us so exactly so for us yeah. and those of us who belong to that tribe i mean uh, it wasn't really a choice it was what i knew like i grew up and my parents when i was at you know for me becoming an actor formative years and yeah. that i was making a decision to become an actor between probably seven and twelve yeah in those five years, the directors my parents were with, the people I was around were, you know... Um, Raffleson? Hal Ashby, uh-huh. Bob Raffleson, yeah. Altman, Hitchcock, Martin Scorsese. Hopper? And Hopper was there, and Harry Dean was there, and Jack Nicholson was there. And you, you were know? how old? You were just hanging around? Seven to 12. That's yeah. crazy! So, and Roger Corman, of course. Yeah. So... You know, in a way. But wait, set the stage. What was it like? Were we in Laurel Canyon? Was it a party? We were, there were couches, in, we beanbags? Were, yeah, we were from. We were in Idlewild. We were in Santa Monica. Uh-huh. We were in Malibu. We were in Valencia. <laughs> wherever the money came from. Yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah we right. were wherever the location right. was, or we were hanging out, and you know, and I was watching major collaboration, big hearts. No raging, lots of kindness on set, real what do you think, whether you're a grip, a gaffer, an actor, craft service, my DP, the director formula that I grew up around was, we're all making this thing and whoa, this is so awesome and we're here and nobody's really making money, but we're having a blast and this is the vision and what do you think and what do you what think? What was that? Well, now I'm spacing the movie where your dad played the uh, the vet that comes Coming back. Coming home. Coming home. Hal Ashby. So yeah, right. Oh. So that was the Hal Ashby movie. So you were on that set. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, yeah. it was very little, what, but... What are some of the memories of, like, uh, you know, watching any of these guys where you were like, holy shit. Like, I mean, there, is there, like... I, I know it's hard to focus on that specifically, but there are certain moments in your life that you probably remember. I remember very vividly Martin Scorsese directing my mom and Ellen Burstyn and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And they had a brilliant and beautiful scene, two scenes that I remember vividly that I was there for. One is in a bathroom. Yeah. Where 
my mom, Ellen's crying, and my mom follows her in the toilet to talk about being single moms together. And my mom talks about how her daughter has to have a bunch of dental work and she can't pay for the, you know, dentist. And and halfway through the scene, I'm looking at the pages I'm holding. I mean, I've just started reading people. Yeah. And they're not saying the stuff that's on the page. Right. And Scorsese's telling them, you know, talk about this, talk about your necklace, da, 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 touch your hair, throwing ideas out, oh, right, and they right. keep rolling, and they're they, and then suddenly it's two women talking about their lives, and the men they've lost, and are they enough to raise a kid on their own? And I just, I literally remember starting to cry, because I was so moved by the honesty of these two women, and it was all happening in the moment, and he was, you know, he was so much more than a filmmaker he was this guide yeah. on the journey to you know to themselves in a way and right, right. i was so moved by that yeah equally same summer my dad was doing a hitchcock film family plot which was late hitchcock late like hitchcock. almost the last one right yeah and very regimented he was a taxi driver or something w- yes exactly ah, I with uh, um Karen Black oh, and yeah. um, and Barbara Harris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she they were all around and and it was like being on a comedy set. Yeah, he loved being entertained. He loved it funny. Who Hitchcock? Hitchcock. Yeah. He m- had them make a little uh, mini director's chair and put it next to him for me to sit in. <laughs> I mean, this thing insane. <laughs> How did I get this life? You know that. But of course, jump forward to. 15, 16, yeah. and the like, you know, auditions I didn't get. I yeah. mean, there are paths that found me and directors that found me. This isn't just I came up with this by choice. But, you know, I auditioned for a Bogdanovich movie and a Brat Pack movie. And then, and I got the Bogdanovich movie. Then I started to get to make choices. That was Little Foxes? What it was, was uh, no, that was Mask. Okay. Oh, yeah, he directed Mask, that. That's yeah. right. And you were the, uh, the blind girl. girl yeah. Movie. And then, Maybe the, that was heavy emotional. Thing. Yeah, that's pretty and, beautiful. And he's, you know, and he was part of that tribe by right, chance. Right. But um, and then the next year, I mean, Smooth Talk came at a time that I was. It was the first time I was offered a sort of formulaic teen movie mm-hmm. that probably would have brought me lots of success. Mm-hmm. And Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. And I had an agent read Blue Velvet and be like, "Oh my god, you can't do this movie. This is so offensive." <laughs> So suddenly now I'm an almost 17-year-old trying to decide what kind of movies do I want to make. And it wasn't necessarily brave or not. It was kind of what I knew. Right. I met David Lynch. He seemed like the kind of people I grew up around. Dennis was in it. Dennis was in it. I'd just seen Elephant Man, which was one of my favorite movies of all time. I saw Racerhead, which I was just obsessed with. It was my orientation. I felt like I'd found my people. Right. So you grew up in the this sort of like you know high minded, risky you know uh, kind of uh, art movie world of the seventies. That was you know on some level that that explosion that your parents were involved in that you grew up in was just the most defining era of American movies. And let's be clear, there was another parent in the house. Yeah. And Paul Thomas Anderson is the only person I've talked to about this because he also lived in the Valley at the same time and at the same school for a couple of years. There was my mother. Yeah. There was my father. Yeah. Both working actors. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. Who was my babysitter? Who? Z Channel. And there weren't restrictions, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So I was 11 and I was watching Clockwork Orange. Right. Or Luna. Yeah. 
And I was like, Mom, it was so heavy. And she's in love with her son. And she's an opera singer. And it's Jill Clayburgh. And yeah. unmarried woman, you know, yeah. sobbing on this is what it's like to be a woman. And you were what, 15, 14? 12, 11. <laughs> I saw Clockwork Orange when I was 11. And Paul Thomas Anderson related to this? Yeah. yeah. There, you know, there were a couple of cable networks that we all, and Maya Rudolph, his wife, that we all kind of growing up in L.A. grew up on yeah. and saw everything. Right. So... We were learning about, God help us, you know, relationship and what the world looked like and where you stretch boundaries and that people are complicated. Dog Day Afternoon. I mean, to me, that was one of the sweetest men I'd ever seen on screen. Unbelievable. I loved him. I, I wanted him in my family, you know. And so I grew up knowing that you don't judge people in film yeah and uh and i guess long for that in life so i wanted to kind of keep doing that isn't it amazing when you watch that movie and you watch sort of what pacino became and you're like is that guy still in there i saw and, th- and then he does jack of Orkian and you're like it is kind of in there it is like, oh you my know, god he's like, amazing in that it was so relieving to see him play jack of Orkian with all that weird vulnerability and oh. you know, it's, I, it's I, it blows me away man blows me away all right so you choose to do blue velvet now, could you wrap your brain, even you know, watching Bergman and, and everything else on the Z channel or whatever you were watching, I mean, could you wrap your brain around that script? I mean, in, in terms of what it really looked like? Uh, yes, in that um, somehow I think I understood him in terms of light versus dark, mm-hmm. Sandy, my character versus Dorothy, the 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 overtness of sort of the Wizard of Oz aspect of david the good witch and the bad witch and and the witness to all of it the boy on the journey which in in Did case he... of me kind of turned to me in in more recent movies maybe so whether it's a boy or a girl as the lead you know someone's on a journey and they're exposed to extreme opposites did he explain it to you like that no he never said a word to me he's never said a word to me still <laughs> People are like, what's Inland Empire about? Don't ask me. I don't know. I mean, I loved every minute of it, and he taught me so much about acting, but he's never told me a word about it. Really? Never, and there was so no So no script. explanation, but you had conversations? Not really. I don't wait, really talk, so wait, we talk about wait. coffee and... But it's okay, so you're um, 17, and you're choosing to go you yeah. know, the, into the Lynchian universe as opposed to like, you know, what are you guys doing? Uh, yeah, universe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and he definitely talked to me about what he wanted from me as Sandy. And it was innocent and pure. And, you know, the beauty of David, which is also what I think makes his movies so funny, and I think what makes Mike White so funny and a lot of other people we love as writers Mm -hmm. and as filmmakers is the part that is poetry is, is God to them. And even though we're laughing, mm-hmm. it means everything to them. And it's fiercely protected, mm-hmm. just like what's dark is deeply dark. Mm-hmm. And that's where the humor is. It's that the world's insane because we're trying to like handle life being this extreme. And that is so funny. And David, I think, becomes so funny because there's an absurdity to his movies. But in fact, that's what... You know, growing up in the Northwest obviously felt like it was white picket fences and there was murders down the street. I mean, something's crazy in this country and he's just reflecting it. And we go, God, his movies are so weird. Really? Because CNN looks just like that. Except not as articulate. Yeah, not quite as pretty. (laughs) The framing's not as good. (laughs) But I didn't understand at 17 the, the Frank Booth part of that movie. I think I just 
had the think, feeling of it, but I don't, I don't think really any of us it. did. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, when that happened, I mean, I, if you were 17 when you did it, I was what, 19 or 18 when I saw it. <sighs> yeah. So, you know, when we went to see that, I think it was maybe my last year of high school. When that come out, when did it come out? 81 or something? 80, uh, came out in 85. Really? Yeah. 85, 86. Really? So I was already like, well, I was in college, but like that, that Frank Booth character, that oh. was, I don't think anybody, it just represented some sort of pure human darkness that yeah. was vague and, and incredibly defined at the same time. Totally. Yeah, no, you know. And I, I remember doing the last scene of the movie and kind of not knowing much about it. And interestingly, even though David doesn't say much about sort of theme of the film or yeah. whatever, he wouldn't, I, I would hang out and visit certain scenes when I wasn't working, but the Frank Dorothy world I never came to set, and he never let me come. Because you were too young? I think just keep <laughs> Was kept, it protective? No, I think it was like keeping Sandy out of it, like keeping the goodness away from the darkness or something. Well, it's interesting because your goodness was like when your goodness sort of got angry and desperate, you know, there there was something, not grotesque, but something verging on a yes. possible darkness there, too. Absolutely, absolutely. But I remember when we shot that scene... And he said, uh, you're going to go into the set. We yeah. won't rehearse. Just walk into the to Dorothy's apartment. And whatever you see, just respond to it however you would respond to it. And I remember walking in. Oh, my God. When she 17. was like bleeding? Wasn't she bleeding? Yes. And I have this little pink dress on. I remember looking down at my dress. And it had these little flowers. And I was walking with sandals. And at my sandals, I was stepping on brain. And I looked down, I thought, is that, what is that? Is that dog shit? Is that, no, that's a body part. Oh, that's blood. Wait. Oh my God. I think that's real brain. Is that, and I still don't know what he used, but let me tell you something. Yeah. I don't think it was a prosthetic, people. It's some kind of brain. It was some kind of brain. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so glad that's the only time I was ever in that apartment. How we've continued to make movies, and then you embraced, right? Or did what? I can't remember how the scene went. I can't either. I haven't seen it in so many years. We just talked about that. Actually, we were saying we should see it again, and uh, and Wild at Heart. I mean, I haven't seen those movies in so long. Wild at Heart's a trippy movie too. It's so trippy. I love that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time either. So you just rode that out, like you know, Lynch called you and said you're right for this. Do this. Yeah, and that's a road movie. Yeah, it's a road movie. Right. And, and you, it's, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, a, an amazing opportunity to have a director who knows you and, and, and feels in his mind he knows you well enough to constantly ask you to play very different people. And that's the beauty of my great fortune with David is he believes I can play anything yeah. instead of going, you did this for me, keep doing this. Right. Um, so Lula was this amazing departure from the kinds of roles I was being asked to do. And I was Sandy in Blue Velvet. I was the blind girl in Mask. I mean, even though I had done this film Smooth Talk, which is a small Indian, and very kind of sexualized character in right. a way, I wasn't really known for that. Right. And, um, and Lula was kind of a sex siren yeah, yeah. of sorts. Um, and so it was just amazing for me. Did amazing you, for me. Was it comfortable or how did you enter that? I mean, did you... Had very you, had comfortable. Had you turned that on before? Um, in your life? I mean, was that one of those things? No, I mean, I was 22, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so I was so young. And I mean, I 
I was comfortable in it and exploring it for the movie. And so I think it was, it just so happened that at the exact same moment of that movie, I was interested in it in my life, that right. kind of energy. And, and I couldn't ask the for it. The power of it? Um, not necessarily the power of it, the, the, the sensual experience right. of, right. of knowing your own sexuality and feeling what not just the euphoria of love feels like, but, but, you know, being sexy and finding something else sexy. And Nick Cage was so amazing to work with and so crazy brave. And that was such an amazing, he was am- wasn't he? amazing time in his career yeah. where he was constantly doing everything I was inspired to right. do. So he was like the perfect partner for me. And Sailor and Lula were like the perfect couple to play right. together and at that did, time in our lives. When you looked at that script, how did that frame out in your mind? Were you just sort of like, this is sort of like Candide or some sort of weird journey and you know, where you meet all these weird characters along the way? Or how did, it, how did you look at that? I mean, just total bliss. You know, <laughs> I, I feel like David is, yeah, David's, you know, it is like a family member and maybe, you know, in the outside world, someone would say, you know, her dad is like an addict and crazy. Other families don't look like this, but you're in it. So you don't know what other things are supposed to be look like. And David's like, okay, you're going to, you know, pick up. Uh, they're basically the munchkins. You're going to pick them up on the road. They have 12 puppies. Then you guys are going to have a sex and you're going to pick up a girl. And then you're going to go here. Your mother is going to be there. I'm having your mother play your mother. She's going to be riding a broom. What? <laughs> She's the Wicked Witch. Stop asking so many questions. Then I was like, what? Okay. So, I mean, you're in it. You got to just go. And, and, and it was definitely my upbringing. And now with David or any director, I don't need to ask. I'm just happy for the ride. Yeah. And when, when you did, uh, what is it, Rambling Rose? Is that, so that was one where you had to not only harness your sexuality, but be very aware of how powerful it was and what you could use it for. Totally. Totally. And then it's a you very got, different thing. And you got to work with Duval, which, which was I amazing. Can't, I can't even fucking imagine. It was amazing. He's like the best. He's the best. <laughs> He's the best. And he was really amazing with me. And it was really a complicated relationship. Yeah. You know, he's this very loving sort of archetypal father and husband. And yet, you know, he's messing around with the nanny yeah so it, it you know and i'm messing around with a 14 year old boy who's you know i mean I, I don't think the movie could be made now yeah I, I mean it was i remember seeing it and just being like what the fuck i know it's really because it, and, and on top of it i think what made it even more powerful was sort of a period piece you know was set what in the 30s or what yeah. and it was because then you're all of a sudden dealing with that the the idea that like all this all this complicated sort of darkness and, and within the family. That, that that happened then. It's not just cool pictures of things. Oh, yeah. And yeah. very commonly, right. a girl as young as 1920 would be given a hysterectomy if she had sex uh, that was not, that was premarital sex in the South. Oh, yeah. So just the whole concept of a woman's sexuality um, at that time in this country was kind of amazing to explore. But that whole time... I mean, that whole time, I, I, it's, I think what I'm still doing now, but it was a huge time for me to start really blurring the lines because I was working with the right people. I was with people who 
wanted her to be a wild innocent and perhaps manipulative. Uh-huh. There, we, there was no one thing or the other. And David really set the tone of that for my career. Um, Rambling Rose was a big turning point for that, not mm-hmm. only in terms of the writing, Calder Willingham's beautiful novel, which is it's based on and he mm-hmm. adapted. And, and it's a true story. It's his childhood. Right. And so Rose was a real person to him that he considered a true innocent. So really kind of carrying that story, working with Alexander Payne on Citizen Ruth, same thing. They were all saying, you know, this is a boundaryless opportunity. So you play this person completely and... You know, however you play it, it would be nice if people can be with you on the ride, but we're not seeking empathy. And that's a different requirement that than a lot of directors. That gives you a lot of freedom to find. You have a very specific, you know, empowered, you know, female energy mm-hmm. that, that, you know, like no one takes the risks you do really in terms of like pushing the emotions to the point where you're like, oh my God, I don't know whether I love her. I just can't <laughs> fucking be in this room anymore. I can't. <laughs> I mean, at some point, I pray you and I will sit in your garage again, uh, you know, 10, 20 years from now, and I'll say, God, you know, enough of these gals have rubbed off on me, and I really don't care what anybody thinks. Because as an actor, I really don't. Yeah. I really, really don't. And I, I just... Nothing makes me happier. The only compliment I've ever wished for and longed yeah. for is that that compliment of... You know, I felt all these complicated feelings yeah. about her. And by yeah. the end, I really kind of grew to love her. I was sort of rooting for her. I couldn't believe it. I hated myself for rooting for her, but I did. You know, whatever that thing is. I mean, one, one of the biggest challenges as an actor I ever had by such an amazing director, truly one of the great directors of all time, the loveliest human being, such a brave man is Mr. J. Roach. Mm-hmm. He's so funny. He's so all the things we know. But emotionally as a director, he is inspired and and finds the muse for his story in the darkest place. Yeah. And that forces you to really not judge. Which film? We did Recount together for HBO. Oh, right, right, and right. I had to play Secretary of State Catherine Harris. The monster. Exactly. And I'm very known for my opinions politically and had very strong ones about her and that time in history as so many of us did and so I remember you know day one on the set for the first time ever on a movie making a joke like oh my god can you believe her Mm -hmm. and he just nailed me and was like whoa she's my muse what do you mean Excuse me. Right, yeah. What do you mean? We hate like we hate what they did, right? Yeah. Look at look at look at the laws that were broken. Look at people whose voices were stolen from yeah. them. It's like no, but she believed she was doing what was right for this country, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> and and it what it's what takes you from the attempt at a skit on SNL where yeah. you can go as big as possible to create a caricature right. of sorts, right? And really find the humanity in a person who was going to protect this country, yeah. for God's sake, right. by making sure the right guy won. Literally, for God's sake. For God's sake. Yeah. And if you have to steal some votes, that's yeah. what you got to do. Because you're you're doing this for God. Yeah. And she believed that. And that's what moved him, was her commitment mm-hmm. to to her ideal. And that's a level of narcissism that's fascinating, too. I mean, The delusion of God commitment? 
In in a way, <laughs> yeah, it's oh, like no, you've got to believe so fiercely that your God is the only God, which I I am a believer and I love every path and I'm always interested in anything anybody's got to say and I want to read as many books as possible in every religion because I think it's fascinating. Right. But wow, growing up as a Catholic, I was like, wait a minute, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church? That was hard for me. I believe in one religion. My mom and I were also like, huh? Mom was like, no, we don't. We mm. believe in a lot of religions. Yeah. This happens to be ours right now, but hold on, guys. You know, like. That's how you grew up? I grew Well, I was raised Catholic by a very Catholic grandmother, but my mom was a meditator since I was a kid, and we would go to Catholic church. I went to Catholic school for several years. So that's weird because you were probably, you know, uh, in between the first real departure of gener- generations from that. That totally. like, you know, the whole tone culturally of the 60s was like, hey, cut loose, man. Absolutely. And then you had the staunch kind of like tradition of her, and there you were in the middle of this. Yeah, that was which was super lucky, actually. Yeah. And I think it, it's part of this acting path too because both things are true sure what do you give your kids religion wise um funnily enough i just said to my son the other day we gotta start going back to church he was like really how old um he's 11 Uh uh-huh but um i love ritual yeah so as a meditator as someone who does yoga as someone who loves the ritual of church and saints and prayer Good and stories. candles mm-hmm. and and storytelling mm-hmm. i i love that for my kids and for myself like i love i loved having that in my childhood and that's the one bummer if you don't have your ritual of sundays is about that or sure. you know your but for me going to church for an hour was rhetoric and non-connection and not groovy yeah but there are a lot of places people go now that's about you know music and fun it's funny, and celebration if you just tweak ritual a little bit i mean yeah the catholic church was non-groovy but if you know if the priest was wearing something different and the music was a little groovier yeah people would be like this is all right if you're at saint monica's in santa monica and they're talking about same-sex couples yeah. and honoring everybody in the congregation you're like whoa something cool is going on here yeah. it's actually about equality so there's that i mean i'm i'm I have very strong opinions uh, about human rights, one of the human rights being a woman's right to choose. So it becomes very complicated for me to have any opinion the minute anyone's setting rules for right. an individual. Sure. And yet, I love spiritual practice and ritual. So. Well, when you say meditation, what do you do? Are you like a TM person? I am a TM person. Did and, Lynch get you into that? Um he actually wasn't the first person to get me into that, yeah. um, but he's inspired me to kind of stay far more regular than I was for well, years. Well, you explain to me. So it's not it, it. It's just a system. It's not a community. No, I mean, you know, it is for many people a community, and certainly was in the '60s. Um, you know, there there is a guru to follow in in the '60s. There always was. In is there one Practices now? of medi- meditation. Um, the Maharishi is is no longer right in this no life, longer, but people right. may still honor him. Right, and, I, right. and I've had different practices of meditation, and uh, in a couple of cases, there were gurus, teachers who came from India to teach that practice of meditation or yoga, and all of them have inspired me deeply. But in terms of a, as a practice, TM is used by 
corporations. It's used by the Lakers. It's used in the NFL. It's used as truly a systematic practice to dive in in terms of a deeper level of focus. Do I do I need to do it? Dude, you totally do. Well, what do you get out of it? Uh, for me, yeah. I have an ability I never had before. What and is, when what? I'm consistent, I I can consistently have it. And that is I can literally feel all the feelings that I have yeah. in the face of someone throwing something at me and actually take that breath they tell you about. Yeah and detach a little uh-huh. and i know it comes from every day making a commitment for 20 minutes to let go of every other thought in my head where there's a silence and there's a connection to only self and if you have that practice as an actor as an artist anyway it's hugely influential on my work because i can i know how to be in the moment mm-hmm. And it takes a few minutes to get all those cobwebs out and just focus on one thing. But as an actor, I need that desperately to make everything else go away. Is detachment tricky for you? Oh, completely. You, Almost impossible. Do you do The Secret Club too? What's that? <laughs> you know, Al-Anon or anything like that? Oh, The Secret Club? Is yeah. that what it's called? That's what I call it on the air. I love The Secret Club. <laughs> You're kidding? I wouldn't be here without The Secret Club. Um you heard me use my slogan. I yeah, used yeah. a slogan I know, earlier. I know. Um, and and by the way, that's all part of the same thing too. But TM is, you know, when I when I hear athletes talk about the practice of meditation, that's a real turn on because they're literally applying it to talk about how their level of focus in the game, their mindfulness in the moment, being in the moment in a very high stress situation is so much better. So why wouldn't we all need it? We live in high stress all the time. What's the uh, what's the alternative to the moment? You, you know, it, like I I know like if you have sort of like um the the type of childhood you had, there's a tendency towards wanting to control and 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 uh sort of try to tell the future. So the difference between being in the moment uh, and and it's just being in your head, right? I'm going to so, tell a story about an actress, and I hope she hears it one day. And and I haven't seen her in years, and I hope she won't mind me sharing it. But it's just you're going to leave her unnamed. It no, I'll say her name because yeah. it's so adorable about you, Winona Ryder, that I'm going to tell it because <laughs> it's so adorable. So I said, you know, I can't live in the moment. I, I'm, I'm like between the past and the future. I'm thinking about, oh, my God, if only I had made that choice, then that yeah. wouldn't have happened. And, blah, 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 blah. and if I had done this, then I bet he wouldn't have gotten so upset because yeah. I can, I can yeah. control everybody's behavior. But in the future, if I, you know, if I make my life look just like that and I get it just right and I do everything perfect, then maybe everybody else will fall in place. Yeah. Amy Jellico. <laughs> so, but no awareness that there's a moment happening right now. And I shared this with Winona and we were 18. Yeah. She was like, wow, really? That's how you live? That's interesting. Yeah. I don't really relate to that or something. And then, you know, three days later, she calls me up. She goes, oh my God, I've just been diagnosed. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, I went to a therapist and I have something. It's a real disease. And I said, what is it called? She said, it's called, uh, it's called anticipatory nostalgia. And I said, what does it mean? She goes, well, I don't know how he diagnosed it so quick. And I said, what did you say? She said, I walked in crying. And he said, why are you crying? She said, I was laying in bed this morning thinking one day my son will be going off to college and leaving this house. <laughs> And I said, Winona, you're 18. You don't have a son. And I thought it was so brilliant. And I so relate to that disease. Yeah. 
It's like, what if one day a, a very close friend of mine who said, you know, I was I was thinking I'll pull up the and this is OCD based, too. But it yeah. also is that disease of like making choices now that might affect the future. She was like the rug in the living room wasn't working and it was 2 a.m. And I thought, you know, what, I'm going to pull up the rug and I, thought, I can't. Because this rug is the last rug I would have bought for my daughter if something happens to me. And then if I lose the rug, ah, and right. I thought, whoa. I mean, just all the fear of, you know, again, the future or the mistakes of the past. And I was very affected by my grandmother, really nostalgic over a lost love till the end of her life. And it broke my heart. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do that. So I call everyone I've ever dated. No. Um, <laughs> to either say, I'll never be with you again. But, that, but that's or, interesting, though, how you, again? how you like hold on, like even investing certain mystical properties to a rug as being as having you know implications that if you disrupt the order. Yeah. That, I mean, I get that all the time. Yeah. And then it, I never really put it together in terms of like somebody holding on to a pain or a broken heart. Exactly. Me being, too. It's consistency. Exactly. That it's it's based in fear and, and like uh, the pain is familiar and why not stay there? And that's what they say about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder in children. It's usually happening during a divorce when there's been a great loss, some kind of trauma. Yeah, sure, sure. It's some way of, you know, control. And that's what's interesting is we all do it differently. That's why I say I, I look forward to learning more and more from my characters because, you know, there's a lot to learn from the abandon. Uh, that one has when they're really not considering the outcome of their actions or what other people think. It's and great. It's awesome. Yeah. So to play... You just got to be willing to take the hit if you hurt a couple of people. Exactly. And, and you know, <laughs> I mean, listen, if you're a narcissist and you don't even clock that, it yeah. must be awesome. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I can ask my dad if we were talking. But... Um, <laughs> I mean, as I said to a friend the other day, they said, you know, in your work on yourself yeah. and... All the things you do in your work, you know, what have you gained? What have you learned? I'm like, I'm really jealous of alcoholics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of what they I'm feeling this the week. They want. Oh, it's awesome. Well, you must have, I mean, like, not to be too personal, but I mean, I assume that learning from characters is one thing, but you've certainly made a lot of very distinctive choices in, in, in mates over the, your career. Totally. Fairly charismatic, uh, uh, kind of uh, erratic people. Yes. I mean, you must have gleaned something. I mean, like... That, what was who? What's the range? You know, Jeff Goldblum, Billy Bob, uh, Rennie Harlan. I mean, you know, I mean, it's all wow, very public. You're breaking it down. Yeah. Um, what have I learned? Uh, you know, and especially because I'm, I'm, I'm just coming out of a very long marriage. Well, a long marriage in terms of what With, I've seen. Ben Harper. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I would say, you know, I, I suddenly. What feels like home isn't necessarily comfortable anymore. Mm. And that's cool. Mm -hmm. It's cool when you start to go, wow, I want to feel different things. If if, if home was chaos. Yeah. Right. You know, or not knowing where you stood or not knowing what anybody was going to feel from day to day. Right. Um, You know, not even taking into account the characters that raised me, Mm -hmm. but the mere lifestyle of people who work away and divorced families, just that environment. And like, it's grandma, it's a babysitter, it's mom, I'm Mm -hmm. with dad. Just that kind of lifestyle is... um, there's you know, no way to. Settle. I don't. I didn't. I wasn't attracted to consistency. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> People assume that what I was attracted to was extreme drama, uh-huh. and maybe that's the case. I mean, I'm. I f- love artists, and I always will. Um, 
you know, and I'm interested in people who have something to say and they really want to say it. That's super cool to me. But there are a lot of different ways to do that and a lot of professions out there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, um, but I, you know, I'm just starting to kind of become a grown up where consistency is intriguing to me. Well, you can sit with yourself better. I mean, when you're when you're in a completely sort of erratic, emotionally erratic situation where you don't know what's going to happen next, there's always that juice of like, oh fuck, yeah. now we gotta, you know, like the, the yeah. ability to kind of like just be okay with that frequency that is you. It's it, it can be boring at first, right? Well, yeah, because if you think your job is to manage it, yeah. then then you have no job, right? So it's like, well, what am I going to do now? I got all this free time. Shit, I mean, how much yoga can a person do? Horseback riding, really? Taking uh -huh. up at forty? Yeah. I, like, I mean, when everybody talks about getting hobbies, I'm like, oh Jesus, I forgot to do that. I have um, emotional hobbies. I know. You just got to find the right person to and drive my, you crazy. I mean, I am the luckiest person alive in that my hobby really is acting. It's yeah. the hobby I love the most, right. and I get to call it a job. So. Um, you know, I'm trying everything because right, I've like got what? kids. So I'm surfing or we're stand up paddling or uh -huh. we're longboarding or we're, you yeah. know, like, I'm like, cool, let's do this. And that's cool. And some of them are things I did as a kid. Uh -huh. um, but I don't have an obsession, yeah. which I think is good for me, by the way, uh, right now in my life. Um, but oh, I'm yeah. loving exercise. That's awesome, and I never liked that. Yeah, I got to get back into that. Shit, when you like it, suddenly, oh, and yeah. I've never liked it. You just got to cross that yeah. threshold. Yeah, suddenly I'm liking it. It's yeah. like fun to You can me, get obsessed with weird. that, and you can get really weirdly thin and yeah. and think you look great. That yeah, thing. yeah, I'm in and that right like, now. Like, is she dying? No, I'm, yeah. I'm great. Oh, my God. <laughs> Who needs eating? This is awesome. Soul cycle every day, no food. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it's becoming an obsession, so you're focused yeah yeah that's another thing that all your characters seem to have is an obsessive passion yes yeah sometimes it's huffing paint uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> which is not my passion you which never, is probably good you never a drug person never that, you lucked out there something, I, something must have turned you off early on it sure did man yeah I, I, I got really lucky and and who knew that seeing it would be the turnoff well that happens with people whose parents smoke too i mean like it's gonna go either way yeah what'd you see um, I mean, I saw, I saw people's behavior, yeah. which is probably, was probably the early detector and, and not my parents, but other people's behavior Hanging around out. them. Yeah. Just sort of like, why is he acting weird? Yeah. yeah. And like the behavior didn't feel comfortable. It was like, they're yeah. not themselves now. Right. That's not so fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was weird as a kid, but I did a movie when I was 12 um, called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, which was directed by Lou Adler. Um, Diane Lane, who's still one of my best friends, I'm lucky to say. And so we went off and did this movie in Vancouver for about four months, probably. Yeah. And our co-stars were a member of The Clash, two members of The Sex Pistols, Ray Winstone, a now oh, beloved great, yeah. great English actor, was a kid then. And um, they were the band that we toured with. Right. We were a punk band. Mm -hmm. And um, the Tubes and a lot of bands were in and around it. And a lot of bands, because they were friends with Lou, the Boomtown Rats, 
The Who. But those guys would come through town to do their show, and then they would hang out. So we were around incredible musicians. Yeah. And also, you know, a lot of recreational activity. (laughs) And I had an amazing experience, which is uh, someone took me aside at that time and told me that I'd be an idiot to ever do any of it. Mm. And he was definitely you know exploring in his own way and he a huge in, punk star he was in trouble and i don't know if he was in trouble that usually at the time comes from but, a guy who can't like who can't stop and who had more importantly he'd lost someone mm. not that recently right. i mean very recently yeah so it was his warning and i never forgot it and my mom was an amazing mom in that way she never addressed it in a judgmental way she was like look if this is something you're ever interested in right people can do crazy stuff with chemicals i don't trust what they're doing even with pot people say it's you know (laughs) healthy and it's like homegrown but you know they lace stuff they do i don't want you out at a party with kids who are driving tell me if you're interested i would want to know i'd want you to be in this house if you were going to explore drinking or anything so you know, if I wanted to have a beer or whatever, I did it in my own house with friends, which some people might judge. But guess what? I was never that interested. I was never in a car with people drunk. Yeah. And my rule was I had to do it at home and we never got loaded. Right. That's why my mom was there. Right. Who wants to get loaded with your mom? And, and drugs were totally uninteresting to me. And I just don't like... I guess it's the benefit of my uh, managing yeah, crazy. Right. You don't is I, be- I don't like being... So out of control that I can't manage myself. That scares right. me a lot. Unless you're doing it on purpose, in a role. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, emotionally it's cool. Yeah. In love, you know, in, in romance and sexuality, I mean, there's lots of ways to explore and feel um, unabashed in your exploration. Yeah. But to, to be on a chemical that's altering my brain. Yeah. I'm just, you know, and, and everybody's drugged now. It's just what you do. But also, like... I don't know. I kind of want to know what depression feels like or anxiety. That's how I kind of clock where I'm at. So when I'm doing better, I can know, oh, this is better. It's not the Wellbutrin doing it to me. But I've made progress. Yeah, I get it. I get it a lot. But I'm, you know, I'm probably doing very poorly, but. Oh, no, you know, nice. I'm doing it with, you know, meditation. No, yeah. What do you do? You're doing it old school. I mean, I'm, I'm going old school with yeah, my depression. Yeah, so I'm going to fight it out. <laughs> I want to be aware of this fight. I'm going to plow through this. Exactly. So, uh, well, how many, okay, before we stop, uh, how many Jurassic Parks are there happening? What, you've done three? There, I've done one and three. Yeah. There have been three, yeah. and uh, there's supposed to be a fourth, yeah. which right now I'm not in, and I they were doing it, and now... I don't know. I think it's delayed now. Yeah. What they're having a hard time what with uh, getting money sh- for dinosaurs? Yeah, or? probably. Yeah. It's it wasn't a popular movie originally, mm-hmm. so they're probably <laughs> worried if it's ever going to do sell any anything. Yeah. <laughs> but I was lucky to do it with Steven, and um, that was the amazing part. And it was a first time for everybody, including ILM. I mean, there'd never 
never been yeah it was pretty amazing computer for graphics all of us. in that way yeah, yeah so in the theater we were like oh my god it was so crazy well what's well, now he seems like a, a dire- as a director you know compared to some of the other people you talked to he seems like a, a manager and very sort of together and how did that work he's amazing because he's both things mm-hmm. he always laughs because i did a, a interview in rolling stone when the movie came out yeah. and i compared him to david lynch and said how similar i thought they were and he was just mind blown that i had said that but um um, in what way? He in, knows what he wants? Well, first of all, is there any filming? And everybody's like, whoa, you know, the blockbuster, Steven mm. Spielberg. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He's insane. He went, I'm going to make a movie about an alien and a kid's friendship. I'm going to make a movie about yeah. a killer shark <laughs> yeah. that like makes people go lose their minds and become obsessed with getting this fish. You know, whatever it is, it, it in a way is sort of an insane concept yeah. that then became the box office hit. Right. But it was the indie movie when he was coming up with it. Sure. And Close Encounters is such a masterpiece to me. Oh, yeah. my God. I love that movie so much. And um, You know what kills me about that is his casting of Francois Truffaut. Oh, my God. Like, it's I, incredible. But it's just like I read into it so much that Truffaut was the guy that was overseeing the communication with the alien that was sight and sound, which is the metaphor for the cinema. Ultimate cinema. Right. Totally. Did you, I, I'm, not, I'm not crazy, right? Not only are you not crazy, but I just want you to know, and I've never shared this, that I got a... 8 by 10 glossy on Hollywood Boulevard where you could go through the files yeah, yeah. from movies just to find, because there wasn't the internet. Yes, I'm mm-hmm. old. And found a picture of Francois Truffaut for my room because he's my ultimate crush. Yeah. Oh, I was so in love with him. Oh, my God. Those are great. All and, he, and he was. He was saving art and culture and, yeah, and yeah. beauty and, yeah. and faith. Yeah. And 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 let him actually explore what he wanted to explore, the hero being uh-huh. Richard Dreyfus. But one of my favorite images in that movie, which if you get the uh I guess it's the criterion edition mm-hmm. of the film in the widescreen where you can see his intent of everything you'd see in the image, when Richard Dreyfus first gets the call that the power is out, and this is Stephen to his core to me. You have him in this just off the center of the frame with a phone. And he's like, what do you mean? Well, do they have it in whatever the next county is? Yeah. No, it's out there. Wait, it's going off right now. Oh, the lights are going. And, and the lights start going off above them. Right. And Terry Gar is in the kitchen. Yeah. And you see her just to the side and she's washing dishes, which you hear. And in the left corner of the frame is this a little bit too old baby. Maybe he's like three in a playpen. Mm-hmm. And the whole time the baby is smashing its baby doll's head against the edge of the playpen until the head flies off into the frame. And I just, that's what I think is so beautiful about Steven. It's like, David, they don't waste one inch of their frame. And real life is happening everywhere in the most absurd circumstances. And they do it in very different ways. But there's also brilliantly adventurous thinking in the way they do it. Construct. Like, yeah. But, but it's micromanaging in a way. Because Absolutely. It's not like, like when you watch some of the earlier Scorsese stuff, you're like, oh, this is just, it's just crazy out Mean there. streets, everything's yeah. all over and yeah, but steady when, cam everywhere. When you watch yeah. it, and Coppola is the same way, highly constructed frames. Absolutely. And like that, that's amazing to me when, because I was, we, I watched one little segment of Lynch's, um, what, what was the one with the, the long mile or the, what, the you know the the tractor the the oh oh yes uh, uh, was it straight story. straight story straight story yeah 
just the one scene where he finally sits on the porch with Harry Dean <gasps> and Harry Dean says, did you drive that? Like, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. <sighs> but the composition of every fucking frame is yeah. meticulous and it's all so intentional. And I don't know if this is true for David, but I'll say for myself, yeah. we're also part, I mean, we got it in reruns and, and maybe some of the filmmakers we're talking about got it originally, but we're all within a similar era that we grew up with television that inspired us immensely and isn't talked about enough. And for me, first of all, the Andy Griffith show defines that straight story scene. Yeah. They would have three minute takes of Andy and Barney on the porch strumming music and nothing would happen. And then he'd go, well, and Barney would go, well, nothing <laughs> else would happen. And it's just so brilliant. It's so brilliant. Equally, all in the family. Yeah. I mean, Lucy and the most, you know, amazing Gene Stapleton performance of Edith are are the women that raised me on the gray. Mm-hmm. I mean, they went for it so completely. Yeah. And you wouldn't define Edith as an idiot and yeah. you wouldn't define Lucy as a rager or overtly jealous. Yeah. And yet... They were, right, and yet they were so complicated and beautiful, and you loved them, and you wanted to protect them, and they were your heroes, but they were a mess, too, and <laughs> Archie was a disaster. I mean, we could never have that character on TV now. Uh, as much as one. we think we're being so bold, right? and The Office and Modern Family right. have given us incredibly bold and brilliant characters, yeah. or Breaking Bad, right. Archie Bunker broke every boundary, right. Maud broke every boundary, so we were so lucky to have 70s television yeah. doing it for us and right. the reruns of I Love Lucy and Andy oh, Griffith Show. Forever they'll rerun. Forever. So what are you working on now? Um, I'm just figuring it out. <clears throat> I was working in New Orleans, which is such an awesome city, yeah. on a movie and uh, hopefully going to do a movie in the fall that I love. I'm I'm in a really interesting time of realizing that we're not going to do Enlightened anymore, uh, and that's a bummer, because I bummer. just love Amy, so it is sort of like saying goodbye to You really can't get that friend. thing done, that last season? Come on. I don't what know. Some it? journalists have been writing in lately saying they're starting some kind of campaign on Kickstarter, and people are very vocal about it. Why well, can't get Netflix to do it? Do, does HBO uh, have ownership of the- Yes. Man, they won't let it go? I don't... You can get it back. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll make a call. Yeah, you make. A, we need you to make a call. Are you kidding? That's exactly what we need. I just don't understand. Like you know, with all the money that's running around and all the availability to do something, uh, you know, on a reasonable budget, that it's just like you know, just let's just get it done. I know. The only the biggest bummer to me. I actually haven't talked to Mike and haven't talked to him about this, but in the last three weeks, yeah, the new fans in the last three weeks, right, who've had two seasons Didn't in their TiVo, yeah. And they're like, oh, my God, when are you coming back? Yeah. We're not coming back. So, you know, people are sort of just finding it now. And, um, and and the plan was just to do one more anyways? What the fuck? I mean, that's fucking ridiculous. Well, I mean, what yeah. The, what are they we, spending their money on? One more season? Right. They can't, they, yeah, HBO can't kick in to do what? Another, how many episodes? And they might have. Ten? Eight. 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 Six even we could have done. I mean, we could do anything. Oh, that's fucking ridiculous. We can do anything. I mean, with that talent, you and Mike, what the fuck? But it is, it's hard because you know where it could have gone. And Mike had brilliant ideas for the future. And we had a, I I think we had a real interest in 
now that we know this person and we know she can become a whistleblower, but once you are on the soapbox, oh my God, then what do you do with that? Right. That's inter- That's very For interesting. For her, I, could, I, I would I love to see that. So, um, but in the meantime, I, I pray in the next year and two, mm-hmm. I'm working with friends who are great filmmakers and just getting to party like I've been lucky enough to do and have fun while also having my two babies who, you know, I love to be around and figuring out how to do that on my own, which is cool, but interesting. Oh, you're going to do it. You you seem happy. I'm totally happy. And I'd be thrilled if they just came with me all the time, which is what I did with my mom. But now, like, people think kids should be in school. Yeah, what the hell is that about? (laughs) No, in the 70s, I went to, like, the most college preparatory school in L.A., they were like, sure, yeah, whatever. Yeah. See you in a few months. And now kids also seem to have their own lives younger. Oh, they have such it, huge lives. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine it with connectivity and, and just, you know. I mean, having, they're on Instagram. They're yeah. texting each yeah. other. They're yeah. making their yeah. own plans. Yeah, movies, making their own movies. Oh, yeah, they're, they've all made their own movies. Yeah, it's crazy. And they're pros at everything. Yeah. And by the way, they're heroes who are influencing them, yeah. especially the girls. Yeah. Jai's like, Mom, Katy Perry started writing at 13 and Taylor Swift started writing at 12. I've got to write songs this summer. Wow. She's eight. Yeah. (laughs) You have time. (laughs) But she's like worried that she's not going to get her first record out by the time she's 13. Because there's some some busy ladies out there really making music early. That's hilarious. It's crazy. Thanks for talking to me, Laura. Thank you. You feel good about it? I feel great about it. Okay, good. That's our show, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. She's great. I love her. It was an honor to talk to her. Just a a wonderful human being, an incredibly talented person. It was great. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Try to watch my special. You know, there's no window to watch it. You can get it whenever you want. Thank you, Payne Premieres on Netflix, uh, America, Canada, UK, Ireland tonight on the 21st in the non-English speaking countries from what I understand I will be at the Ice House with the uh, with Dean Del Rey on October 13th that's Sunday uh, I will be in touch with you on Thursday um, more will be revealed as they say and uh, you know try to manage your content if you can do anything today you know get hold of your content God, I'm still hammering that ridiculous go to wtfpod.com get some just coffee.coop at wtfpod.com leave a leave a, a a nice message buy some merch we're going to make more cap bowls we're going to make more ceramic mugs we're going to make more t-shirts things are going to be changing a bit with wtf in coming months just in terms of organizational things in terms of managing content mm-hmm pow look out just shit it just shit the pants just coffee.coop again enjoy i'm dealing content forthcoming boomer lives